Parliament Hill. And uh, there in the in the center of the uh, Parliament building is the tower, of course. And we are all familiar with that is the Peace Tower. Just above the entrance of the Peace Tower, there's a stained glass window with an arch above it. A little difficult to see in this picture. I'm going to zero in a bit on it. And uh, inscribed over that arch is a verse from our text tonight in Psalm 72. Zero in a little closer. I don't know if you can make it out or not, but it says this. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. And so that's inscribed right there on the Parliament of Canada facing Wellington Street. As you approach the Parliament, this is what you'd see. And you can read that verse right on the building. It's interesting. I'm, I'm glad that it is there. I'm happy to see it there. I can imagine that if the building was being designed and built today, not likely you would have that verse on it. But it's there now and uh, nice to see. Turn over to the east window. You'll see this verse above the window that corresponds on the east side. Psalm 72 and verse 8, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea. And uh, another verse taken from Psalm 72. That is, uh, was seen at the early days of, of establishing of Canada as appropriate for our country from sea to sea. And in fact, the verse goes on to say from the river to the ends of the earth. And uh, so a lot of people have, have seen that as something that would depict Canada. And in the day that Canada was founded, there were those who looked to God for blessing on our land, uh, from sea to sea and from the river to the end of the earth. We can still pray that God would bless our land in that way. Psalm 72. Let's start by reading the psalm together. A Psalm of Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. You will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. You will bring justice to the poor of the people. You will save the children of the needy. He will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow down before him and his enemies will lick the dust. 
The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings will fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will dwell, for he will deliver the needy from when he cries. The poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from the oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth, on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forevermore. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. It's a wonderful uh, psalm of praise, psalm of praise to God. I want to just start by looking at a couple of little things about this psalm, little features of this psalm. First of all, you'll notice that when you come to the end of verse 20, many of you will have in your Bibles, the next line says, Book 3, Psalm 73 to 89. This is the final psalm in a collection of psalms that uh, make up what is known as Book 2 in the Psalms. And the last few verses of the psalm uh, are considered by, by some, and I've wondered myself whether they are more associated with the second book of the psalms than they are really specifically with this psalm itself. I think as I've thought about it more over the past few weeks that I can see it as, as both, really. It's certainly fitting as the conclusion of this psalm. This psalm is fitting as a conclusion to this book, this collection of psalms. And um, uh, and so uh, we find verses 18 and 19 are kind of a doxology, if you would, a benediction. And each of the five books of the Psalms, or maybe more properly, I should say, the first four of the five books of the Psalms end with a similar kind of benediction, a doxology. In fact, we find this idea of amen, or amen and amen, coming up frequently. Each of these Five books ends with a call to praise to God. And, uh, and so when we come to the end of this collection of Psalms, which is book two, we, we have this little benediction at the end. Um, we might wonder about this because it says in the last verse, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And uh, what does that really mean? Because if you turn a few more psalms over, you'll find David's back at work writing more psalms. Uh, this isn't really the, the end of them. Um, 
You turn over to Psalm 86. We read the superscription above that psalm is a prayer of David. So from that standpoint, you would say, well, the prayers of David are not ended. But when you see this as a concluding verse to this collection of psalms, then it makes sense to say that the prayers of David are ended. This, this collection of books, this collection of psalms, um, includes psalms by Asaph and by David and, and by others. And here are the sons of Korah and by David and others. And here we come to the end of this collection. And so we read the prayers of David are ended. We could also understand this verse to, to mean that perhaps this was a psalm written by David late in his life. Perhaps this was among the last of the psalms that he wrote. And uh, that could well be. I don't know that for sure, but it would. If, if it was written by David, then and and if it was written in the context of Solomon ascending the throne, then it would make sense. It would make sense to pair it with the psalm that preceded, which was, as we learned last week, uh, psalms that included a plan for old age. David reflecting on his senior years. And so we have another psalm of David. But was this psalm written by David, actually? Um, the superscription of this psalm, which is, of course, part of the inspired record, is simply this, the Psalm of Solomon. In fact, you'll see the words a psalm are in italics. They weren't in the original text. So it really just says of Solomon. And uh, we usually take that to mean that we understand this was written by Solomon. So was the psalm written by David or was the psalm written by Solomon? The superscription of Solomon could be understood as for Solomon. And some translations actually translated that way, for Solomon. And if that's the case, then it would have been written perhaps by David in consideration of the ascension of his son Solomon to the throne. And so it would be a prayer of David in uh, consideration of all that he desires to see with regard to his son Solomon. I'm not sure that it was written by David. I, I think that it could well have been written by Solomon. Uh, this expression at the beginning of the psalm, I don't want to get too tied up in this time because quickly, of Solomon is the same construction as we have in all the other psalms where we read of David, for example, a psalm of David. It's the same construction. So there we understand it to be that David wrote it. Here we might understand that Solomon wrote it. I'd, I'd like to just say that whether Solomon wrote it or whether David wrote it, God wrote it. Ultimately, it was written by God for us. The Holy Spirit inspired a writer of this psalm to record it here for us. And this psalm, like like uh, so many, um, has a dual application for us. It's a psalm that, that speaks to us of events that are going to take place that the writer of the psalm is anticipating to happen shortly. If it was David, he's looking forward to that time when Solomon reigned. But it is clear that this psalm also anticipates a much more distant interpretation and application. This is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that speaks about the conditions that will exist when the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom. There are four messianic psalms 
in this book, the second book, book two. And um, this is one of those four. Here's a little breakdown of the psalm. You can find a number of different breakdowns, depending on what commentator. I saw several of them, but I like this one. And uh, I, I think it suits the structure of the psalm very well. Many of the psalms display parallelism. And um, there's a writer by the name of Willem van Gurneren, who, um, who has uh, written expeditions on all of the psalms, and he very often breaks them down to show the parallelism in Hebrew poetry. And uh, I've appreciated his work before, and this is the way that he broke down the psalm. The beginning of the psalm, verse 1, kind of parallels verses 18 to 20, where we have a prayer for uh, God's, God's kingship, for David's kingship over the, the land. And then we have two themes. We have the theme of hope for righteousness and justice, and that comes up in verses 2 to 4, and then it's paralleled again in verses 12 to 14. And then we have this prayer for longevity and universal rule, verses 5 to 11, and repeated again in verses 15 to 17. And that kind of accurately, I'd suggest, uh, gives us a little bit of a breakdown of how we could understand this psalm, how it's written down. I'm going to primarily think about this psalm because we just have a very limited time. I'm just going to think about this psalm in terms of its messianic interpretation. I'm not going to look back at Solomon's reign, although you could look at this psalm and see how it would have applied in its day. And it'd be certainly worthwhile for us to do that, but due to limited time, we won't do that. One of four messianic psalms in the book, as I mentioned, in Psalm 69, we have the cross depicted, perhaps the best known of all the messianic psalms, Psalm 68. Ascension is depicted in Psalm 45. We have the king as bridegroom, and here in Psalm 72, the millennial reign is depicted. I've appreciated uh, some comments by T. Ernest Wilson. You might uh, know T. Ernest Wilson, perhaps you don't. He was a missionary in uh, Angola for many years, uh, 35 years, I think he spent in Angola, 38 years actually in Angola, passed away in 1996. And he was not just a, a missionary, but a good teacher of the word of God. And when he returned to, uh, he was from Britain, but he returned to the United States and he taught for another 35 years before he passed away uh, in uh, the U.S. He was a great teacher and a writer and he wrote a lot of things, and he, including a book on the Messianic Psalms. And uh, I've appreciated some of what he had to say. Some of what I'm going to present comes from what he has written. So there's uh, something about the... Messianic Psalms in Book 2, and in particular, I want to think about the millennium. Uh, there are those who don't believe that there will be a millennium to come. But there are many passages of Scripture that speak about this universal period of peace and rest. And these are just a few of them I put up here on the screen. Uh, we're not here to study all of those passages. We're here to look at Psalm 72, but I put them up there to show you that the idea of the millennium and a millennial reign of the Lord isn't just something you find in an obscure place in the Word of God. We see it coming up over and over. There are many pictures of it. There are many uh, direct references to it, some indirect references to it. And here are some examples of places where we see references to this period that we would refer to as the millennial 
reign of Christ. And the reigns of David and Solomon depict, in a lot of ways, the millennial reign that is to come in the future. Moving along, because there are tiny short psalms that speak of the glorious reign of the Messiah. There's a few of them on the screen. Perhaps you would think there are more than that, right? Maybe you could add to that list. We have passages in the New Testament that preview the millennial reign, including things like the transfiguration of Christ. In Revelation, the millennial rule of Christ is referenced specifically seven times, uh, six times over. In Revelation 20, in just seven verses, we have specific reference to a thousand years that Christ is going to reign. And, and so this idea that there, there is a millennium and that uh, it is yet to come is well-founded in God's word. Um, there are, despite that, many who don't believe that there is a millennium to come. And millennials who, who would say that uh, there is not going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. But I believe there are, and I believe this passage speaks to that. So I'm going to suggest that if we look at this psalm, we can see features of that millennial reign. Uh, here are seven qualities of the king and the kingdom that is going to be established. Seven qualities that are described in this psalm that will characterize the millennial reign of the Lord when he returns and establishes his kingdom of the earth. I want to think about these and try to draw out some practical thoughts about it. I'm going to suggest that if, if these qualities are important to God, then they should be important to us as well in our lives. We don't have to wait for the millennium to seek to display these kind of qualities and characters in our own life and to value them in our lives here and now as we live for the Lord. So first of all, we have this idea of justice, some repeating themes through the psalm. Verse, verse 1, give the king your judgments, O God. So there is this idea of, of justice that, that comes up repeatedly through the psalm. Justice, verse 1. I will judge your people with righteousness, verse, verse 2. And he will bring justice to the poor of the people, verse 4. God values justice. God is a just God. God is a just God. And so we should value justice in our lives. You know, we often hear the cry that we want justice. We want to see justice. Some people who have been victims of violence or criminal action and defrauded in some way or suffered some wrong cry out for justice. They want justice. What do they mean by that? Well, God is a God who is just and a God who is fair. We can put fairness that things that are done are treated fairly. And when wrongs are committed, appropriate action is taken to address those wrongs. Justice, sometimes in the voices of those who have been hurt, are often calls more for vengeance than they are for justice, sadly. Justice requires 
that balance, that fairness. It isn't that we can allow wrongs to be let off. We require that wrongs be made right. But we also, if we're going to be just, need to ensure that appropriate uh, actions are taken. We are not to seek vengeance or revenge for those things that we have been wronged. And so, and so we have a God who values justice and fairness, and God calls us to live fairly and to react fairly, not selfishly, not seeking our own, but recognizing uh, that we respond in fairness as God will do. When the Lord comes and reigns, justice will move and perfect justice, justice that is right, and justice that is fair. Second one that we see on the list is righteousness. Righteousness comes up in this psalm a few times. Verse 1, the call is for the king to have righteousness. God, give your, your king righteousness, the king's son, righteousness. It's interesting in this first verse, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. We could see the Lord Jesus Christ as both the king and the king's son, can't we? He is the king, and yet he is the son of the king. But he is going to be righteous, and he will judge the people with righteousness, verse 2. And um, verse 3, the mountains will bring peace to the people and little hills by righteousness. Peace comes by righteousness. Righteousness here refers to conforming to a moral or an ethical standard. And God calls on us also to live righteously. God values righteousness and his kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness where things are done properly and the standard is held. The standard of God is the standard, of course, that we live to is the standard of, of God's word. And righteousness for us is conforming to the standard that he has provided in his word. And we are to live righteously by living to that standard, conforming to the principles that he has established. Peace, number three, the word in Hebrew, of course, is the word shalom. You see this in verse three. He will bring peace to the people. You see it again in verse seven. That uh, as the day in his days the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Another characteristic of the millennial kingdom is that there will be a time of peace, and the Lord of peace will reign. The word peace in Hebrew, as I understand it, implies more than just uh, freedom from from violence or oppression, but it it conveys the idea of well-being health and well-being, even perhaps of prosperity, and things will be well for those on the earth during the, the reign of the Lord, not more than just the freedom of the absence of hostility. And uh, so we should be people who are seeking to live at peace, people who are seeking to uh, bring about peace. The Lord calls us to live peaceably with all men. And uh, he values peace as it is displayed here in this psalm and as it will be in evidence during the millennial reign of the Lord. And then it says, number four, deliverance. There will be deliverance of the oppressed. The Lord cares for those who are downtrodden. He cares for those who are burdened. He cares for those who are 
uh, under uh, oppression by others. And so we need to, like the Lord, care for those who are needy, care for the poor. We need to care for those who are oppressed. Verse 2, we read this. Verse 4, we read this. We read the word poor several times coming up in the psalm. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy. And then uh, in verses 12 to 14, the theme continues. He will deliver the needy when he cries and the poor also. And him who has no helper, he will spare the poor and the needy and the souls of them who are needy. He will redeem the life from oppression and violence. So well, we need to be concerned for those who are struggling and for those who are oppressed because God is concerned for them and God cares for them. Precious shall be their blood in his sight, the Lord says. We're moved by that. That is, the oppressed suffer. And the idea of blood gives us the impression of physical violence against them. There are those who suffer physically and suffer wrong against them. But God sees and God cares. And their blood is precious to them. And he will bring them relief. Wonderful thought of the love and care of the Lord. Number five, blessing and prosperity. We read this in verse six. In verse seven, verse 15 to 17, the Lord calls for blessing and prosperity. We're going to move on because of time. Dominion says that he will rule from sea to sea. Verses eight to 11 talk about how he will rule. And it describes uh, boundaries of the land. And, and in some ways, the boundaries that are described from the river to the ends of the earth, from sea to sea, could be interpreted to define the land that Solomon ruled over in the extent of his reign. But it goes beyond that because it talks about to the end of the earth. We know that during the millennial rule of Christ, he will rule the world. There will be dominion over the world. The world will be at peace. And the world will be at one under the sovereign dominion of the king of kings. And so there is dominion to the ends of the earth. Lastly, it says honor. There is honor that we could be brought to God. And so we should be people who seek to honor God. It's coming a day when all the world will bring him honor. People will come from distant lands to bring him honor. And the lands are listed here a number of places where he will receive gifts. They will come from these, these places. I don't know whether these are figurative or whether these are literal. Whether these places will be, certainly some of them would apply very directly to Solomon and his reign, but in a greater application, you can see that all around the world, they will come and honor him. And you find this, of course, backed up the teaching of the New Testament, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have this wonderful psalm of praise, and we can see in it a wonderful picture of the time that is yet to come when the Lord will reign, Psalm 72. This little song by Isaac Watts. Uh, we sing it from time to time. It's an old hymn, but based on this song. And it captures the thoughts of this song very beautifully. Closing, I just want to think about the last verse. I want to give some time. Jesse could come and, and talk to us a bit about the work in well, But... Uh, Let's read again, verses 18, 19, 
In fact, verse, from verse 17, I want you to notice four times the word blessed occurs. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forevermore. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And his men. I want to challenge you to look at these four occurrences of the word blessed. At the time, we won't go through them, but I challenge you to look at them. Consider for yourself who is being blessed. And how do these blessings progress from the one to another? It's a wonderful little study that I, that I would encourage you to think about. The last verse of the psalm is this, the prayers of Jesse, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are in And uh, Earl Spurgeon is a wonderful little thought that he presented on this last verse. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are in the prayers, plural, prayers. Reminds us that prayer should be made often. David was a man of prayer. He didn't just pray once. He played repeatedly through his life. Prayers should be made often. The prayers of David, prayer is individual. We have the opportunity as individuals to come before the throne of grace, to come before Almighty God, the creator of the universe. You and I, little people that we are, little beings that we are, have the door to heaven open to us. The prayers are individual. We can come as individuals to God only bring our concerns to him. Prayers are individual. Prayers of David, the son of Jesse. If he wrote this psalm and he wrote it at the end of his life, he was a great king when he wrote this psalm. It doesn't say prayers of David the king. Prayers of David, the son of Jesse. It's very humble. It causes me to think about him in his early years as a child, son of Jesse. Prayers should begin early. Prayers should begin in our life when we come to know the Lord. And they should begin early in our relationship with God. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And should continue to pray until the end. Continue to pray until all that we can and need to pray for is perfect. Not only until we go to be with the Lord. Prayers of David, the son of Jesse. Those are some thoughts from this psalm. I hope they've been a blessing to you. Maybe just before we transition here, I'll just uh, have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the richness of your word and for its power for our lives. We, we Look to this day yet to come when the Lord will reign from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, when every knee will bow. We think about the quality and the characteristics of that reign, that rule. And Lord, uh, we long for those times of blessing and peace and deliverance. But in the meantime, we pray that you would help us to understand your character through it. You would help us to understand how you would like us to live and how you like us to be and what our conduct should be. We pray that you would help us to live this way. Thank you for the work of your servants. We think of 
with the Wadis and, and their, their ministry in Nepal. And we thank you that Jesse is with us today. And we just pray that you would um, bless that, that ministry. We look to uh, hear a little bit more about it now and uh, before we go to, to a time of prayer. So we look for your continued blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.